This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Psalm 122, notice the first half of verse 6, it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news in the last uh, few weeks, you're aware that there's, there was intense fighting that lasted uh, about two weeks between the Islamic terrorist group Hamas and Israel, uh, with Hamas firing hundreds, maybe thousands of rockets indiscriminately uh, into Israel, and with Israel in, re- in turn retaliating with uh, surgical, careful strikes in an effort to defend its country its uh, citizens. Now, for those of you who are, who are up on these things, uh, you're aware that uh, some people would object to even the way I just summarized what's been happening over there, while many others would wholeheartedly agree with my summary. Uh, there's a great divide, obviously, in America and around the world when it comes to this, this issue as well as many others. For example, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina made several strong statements in recent weeks supporting Israel's right to defend itself by whatever means necessary, even stating that Israel should do as much damage as possible to Hamas to permanently weaken that terrorist group. Further, Graham said that the Israelis were clearly the good guys in the fight. On the other side, members of the liberal squad, those uh, junior Congress women, I think you know who I'm talking about, have called Israel a racist apartheid state and uh, demanded from the very outset of the fighting as Hamas was launching all these rockets into Israel, that Israel cease and desist, basically stop defending uh, itself um, against what the terrorists were doing. Um, by the way, it's, it's very interesting and very telling that in the last week, uh, over 140 liberal organizations in America, including Uh, a few that we've heard a lot about in the last year or so, have come out solidly against Israel. And again, remember, Hamas is is, is composed of Islamic terrorists who have pledged themselves to the utter annihilation of Israel and the Jewish people. That's their official position. Now, Psalm 122, as you can see, says that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But what does that mean for us today? 
How should we pray about this whole matter? Does praying for peace mean that we must side with those in the American press, in Congress, on the left, who have recently called on Israel to de-escalate, in other words, stop defending itself, even while Hamas was firing all those rockets into their country. And as we pray, we might wonder, can peace ever be achieved? I mean, it seems like there's been trouble over there for many, 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 many years. Is peace even possible? We might wonder. Well, my purpose this morning is, is not to be political. Uh, everything I said was just introduction, just to get your attention. Um, this message is not about politics. Instead, I have three goals uh, for this morning. First, I do wish to shed some biblical light on this matter by briefly noting what Scripture has to say about Israel and Israel's future and about the matter of war and peace in the Middle East. And we'll have to do that very quickly, of course. You know, we only have about 30 or 40 minutes or so, maybe 50 or 60, we'll see. Um, my second goal is to spark interest. Uh, and this is already, I've already realized, uh, achieved my goal, at least for me, just in my study this week. Uh, I, but I hope for you, uh, I hope this message sparks interest and encourages us and prompts you to really dig into your Bible and study and even get some good commentaries and some books on uh, good biblical helps on prophecy and dig into those books in the Bible like Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah and Matthew and the book of Revelation. And there are others that deal with Israel and prophecy. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful stuff. So I hope that this message, again, sparks your interest in that direction. Third, as we consider briefly what the Bible has to say about Israel and the events of these last days, the Bible says we're in the last days, we will want to give praise to God this morning for his sovereignty for his faithfulness, and for his great power. Now, Psalm 122, verse 6, the first half of verse 6, calls on us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let me suggest to you this morning that this call is really, it's really a plea to pray for the return of the King of Kings the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can end the conflict in that part of the world. It's also a plea to pray for the salvation of the Jewish people because we know that their national repentance will immediately precede the return of the king. In fact, we could say that in, in one sense, uh, from the human perspective from the human uh, angle on things that Israel's repentance is prerequisite to the return of Christ and to the establishment of his kingdom 
but uh, I guess I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself at this point. More on that in just a bit. Uh, let's slow down here, and we're going to make three observations from the Bible. Okay, three observations, three points that are relevant to this matter of Israel and its ongoing conflict with its neighbors. First, in Scripture, we see a prediction of this conflict. A prediction of this conflict. And here we're going to answer the question, very simple question, should we be surprised by all this fighting? Well, the roots of this conflict go all the way back to Genesis 16. I guess we could go back to Genesis 3, but for our purposes this morning, we're going to go back to Genesis 16. You don't have to turn there, but as you know, Abraham had two sons. Ishmael was born of an Egyptian slave named Hagar, while Isaac was the child of promise, born through Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now the angel of the Lord foretold that Ishmael would be a wild man who would always be fighting with his brothers. And true to this prediction, Ishmael mocked and even persecuted his younger half-brother Isaac. Ishmael, as we know, would become the father of the Arab nations while the nation of Israel would be born through Isaac's son, Jacob. And we read, of course, of the conflict between these two peoples all through the Old Testament. But as you're aware, animosity towards Israel didn't end in the Old Testament. And the book of Revelation predicts the future persecution of the Jews during the tribulation period by Antichrist and his forces. So again, in light of everything the Bible says, and I, obviously we just summarized it very, very quickly. There's so, so much more we could have said, but should we be surprised by all the fighting that we hear about in the Middle East? Fighting that seeks the elimination of the Jewish people. The answer is no. Starting in the book of Genesis, God predicted this. And by the way, another reason we're not surprised is because this persecution of Israel has been continually instigated by Satan, who hates God's chosen people, the Jews. And so that takes us to a second observation that we want to make this morning. A promise of blessing. A promise of blessing. In the Bible, we read that Israel was blessed by God. Now, some today might question that assertion. In fact, certain Christians today ask, are the Jews, are, are they still God's chosen people? I mean, they're not, they're not Christians. They don't believe in Jesus as their Messiah. So haven't the Jewish people forfeited uh, any favor they once had by virtue of their unbelief? And hasn't Israel experienced only trouble 
down through the centuries. So how can we say that God has blessed them? Well, those are all good questions. And uh, how much time do we still have this morning? <laughs> uh, not enough. Starting in Genesis 12, God promised to bless Abraham. Specifically, God promised to make Abraham into a great nation and to bless that nation and to bless the world through that nation. At the same time, those peoples who would curse this nation, Israel, would in turn be cursed by God. God also promised to give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan, Palestine, as an inheritance forever. And this promise concerning the land was repeated multiple times to Abraham, to his son Isaac, to his son Jacob, and to the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, after God miraculously delivered the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, he declared them to be his special people, his kingdom of priests, his witness nation. And this declaration was furthered in the following days at Mount Sinai when God gave Israel the law, the law of Moses, made covenant with them. Israel was to keep the law, and God would bless them if they kept the law, as he had been blessing them. But there was a problem. The Israelites were sinners, and they failed to obey the law. And so, as a consequence of their sin and rebellion, and in accordance with the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God had made with his people at Mount Sinai, God allowed Israel to experience significant calamity. And God, through the centuries, has continued to allow Israel to experience significant calamity because of its unbelief. But here's the good news for Israel. God, in his grace and mercy, made a new unilateral covenant with Israel. He promised through the new covenant to bring renewed blessing and salvation to Israel despite her many years of rebellion. God announced this new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. And I'm going to read verses 31 through 34 of that chapter, and I think you're going to see the, the words on the screen behind me. This is Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. The Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, and we could pause, time out here, when 
when is after those days? Well, we know from other passages of Scripture that this refers to the end of the tribulation period, a point that's still future for us, of course. So after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. Similarly, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 28, God says to Israel, this is another iteration of the same new covenant. God says to Israel there, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. Now again, there are some today who think that Israel has been abandoned by God because of its unbelief. And they are in unbelief, make no mistake about it, as a nation. Obviously there are ethnic Jews throughout the world who know Christ as their savior, but in a general sense, as a nation, they remain in unbelief. But not only do the passages that we just read indicate that God has not abandoned Israel, we could point to many other passages in Scripture, many passages. Romans chapter 11, for example, which grapples with the issue of God's election of Israel, also says that God has not cast away his people, Israel, whom he foreknew. Indeed, Paul goes on to say in Romans 11 that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, there shall come a deliverer who shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, from Israel. And all Israel will be saved, Paul says. In other words, Israel collectively as a nation at that time will look upon him whom they pierced, the Lord Jesus, and trust in him as their Messiah. And uh, as you know, as a, pardon me, oh, uh, the national salvation of Israel, this uh, event that I just described, which prophesied in Romans 11, Zechariah 12 and 13, this national salvation of Israel at the end of the tribulation, it will usher in the millennial kingdom when Christ will reign from Jerusalem and when God's blessing upon Israel 
will be very, very obvious once again, when Israel will bloom like a rose with the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne and uh, enjoy wonderful prosperity. But until that time, until that time, Satan will continue his work. And so there'll be continued strife and bloodshed until the last battle is fought. You can turn to Revelation 19 if you'd like, and we're going to read of that final battle. Revelation 19, we're going to see this final battle at the end of the tribulation period that I just referenced, right before, right as Christ is returning to earth, right before he establishes his millennial kingdom. And here we're going to see a proclamation of victory. This is our third point for the morning, a proclamation. Three Ps, if you happen to notice that, just for your, uh, just to keep you with me. I know some of you get annoyed by alliteration, but uh, I like to do that. So our third P, we're going to see here a proclamation of victory. We are supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But many wonder, you know, will this conflict ever end? Is it, is it ever going to end? Well, as, as we said a few minutes ago, what we've seen recently in the news, these attacks by Hamas, this is not the last time that Israel will be attacked. Remember, Satan wants to destroy Israel. Satan knows the role that Israel will play during the tribulation, supplying the two witnesses and the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Satan knows the role that Israel will play in Christ's millennial kingdom. And besides, the Jews are God's covenant people. So, of course, Satan hates them. And so, during the second half of the tribulation, Israel will be persecuted by Antichrist and his forces. And then, at the end of that seven-year period, the forces of evil will march toward Jerusalem, intent to destroy those Jews who have not yet been killed. But, but, God will intervene. In fact, it is at this point, at that point in human history, when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth. And he comes to rescue his people, Israel. Let's read about it in Revelation 19. Starting in verse 1, the Apostle John writes, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. 
Skip down with me to verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And here I would uh, pause and I'll tell you that I agree with those commentators who say that this blood on Christ's vesture is the blood of his enemies, Israel's enemies, who he would soon slay. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Skipping down to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. The power of God, of our warrior king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Following this battle, Christ will institute his kingdom based in Jerusalem, with Israel now saved, born again, regenerated, serving as his witness nation to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it is only then that Israel and Jerusalem will know peace. And so, as we said from the outset, if you want to know best how to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the return of the King, for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's uh, so much more we could say. We're just kind of hitting the, the wave tops here this morning. Uh, but for sake of time, we're, we are going to move on. And uh, let's conclude, let's, let's begin to conclude. Don't get your hopes up yet. Let's begin to conclude by making three points of application, personal application, based upon what we just looked at. And each point of application, there's going to be three of them, each point will correspond with one of the three observations that we've already made. First, as we consider the predictions 
and prophecies in Scripture that we highlighted several minutes ago. We should praise God for his sovereignty. Praise God for his sovereignty. Because the God who predicted this conflict, he also controls it. Just as he controls everything else that happens in his universe. In other words, he has written the script of human history. The Bible says in Isaiah 46 that God has declared the end from the beginning. And from ancient times the things that are not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. I love that verse. You know why that's encouraging? It's encouraging for several reasons, but you think about it. It's encouraging because the same God who will do all his pleasure in the Middle East and in, a, in every other area or phase of history, that same God will do all his pleasure in your life. In fact, Psalm 138 says that God will accomplish everything that concerns you, that concerns me. In your life, Christian, no detail is too small. God determines when every sparrow falls, the Bible tells us, and he controls every detail of your life. And so, we don't have to stay awake at night worrying, do we? Even when things seem chaotic from our standpoint and out of control, remember the wheels of God's providence are turning 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days every year. We can trust our sovereign God. Second point of application, as we consider God's promises to Israel, the promises that we just you know, briefly highlighted several minutes ago, we can praise God for his faithfulness. We can praise God for his faithfulness. Praise God that he is faithful even when we are not. Praise God that he keeps his promises and fulfills his purposes no matter what humans may do, no matter what we may do. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel as his covenant people and he promised to bless them in many ways by promising them a land that they would inherit forever, by promising them a king who would reign from Jerusalem forever and by promising to save them as a nation. And so, having promised, God will do all of those things and more. Despite the fact that Israel has lived in unbelief for many years now. As Paul said in Romans 11, speaking of Israel's election... Paul wrote that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. In other words, they're irrevocable. 
they cannot be canceled. God has not cast aside his people whom he foreknew. Another reference from Romans 11. And so we see that God will fulfill all the promises that he made to Israel in the Old Testament. He has not abandoned them. And this is so encouraging, Christian, brother, sister in Christ. This is so encouraging to us because just as God will be faithful to his elect nation, Israel, so he will be faithful to us, to you, to me. If you know his son, Jesus, as your Lord and Savior, God will keep his promises to you no matter what. For example, he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And so guess what? He won't. He promises that nothing will ever separate us from his love. So nothing ever will. He promises to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, Jude tells us. Will God do that? He promised. Yes, he will. So praise God for his faithfulness. Finally, as we consider the victory that Christ will win for his people at the end of the tribulation we read about in Revelation 19, we can praise God for his power. We can praise God for his power. Do you realize that the power that Christ welded on behalf of Israel at the Battle of Armageddon is available to you today. Just as the power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. You can, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. In your life, Christian, God can make all grace abound toward you. In your life, he can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you ask or think according to what? What does the rest of the verse say? According to his power that worketh in us, that worketh in you, if you are his child. So what has God called you to do? In your life, whether it's to be a godly husband or wife or dad or mom or businessman or stay-at-home mom or Sunday school teacher or Christian witness or encourager, prayer warrior, good neighbor, whatever it is, God can empower you to do what he's called you to do. He is able. He is our omnipotent God. Nothing is too hard for him. One final point as we close this morning. 
I don't want anyone to walk away this morning thinking that this was an anti-Arab message. It was certainly a pro-Israel message in, in one sense, but it's not an anti-Arab message. Turn to Romans 15. I love this passage. Turn to Romans 15 with me, please. We're going to close here, I promise. I'm actually doing better on time than I thought. I could have added so much more. Too bad. Romans 15, look at verse 8. Romans chapter 15 and verse 8. Take a look at that verse. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. What does that verse mean? What does it mean besides everything that we've been talking about this morning? It, it pretty much sums up uh, much of what we've said this morning. If I could paraphrase, it's saying that God sent Jesus for the sake of the circumcision, the Jews, right? That's who the circumcision are. That's a reference to the Jews, to God's chosen people, Israel. So God sent Jesus for the Jews, for the truth of God. In other words, to prove God's truthfulness by confirming the promises made to the fathers. God had made promises to the fathers. We reviewed some of those promises several minutes ago. Who are, who are the fathers? Uh, they're the Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. So in other words, God sent Jesus for the sake of the Jews because God had made promises to the Jewish fathers that God had to keep because God keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. So God sent Jesus to fulfill those promises, to keep his word. He could not be proved a liar. Now look at, uh, look at verse 9, the first half of verse 9. So God sent Jesus, I'm going to back up just for context. So God sent Jesus to be a minister to the Jews to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And here's a second reason, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In other words, Jesus came to save Gentiles too. Praise the Lord. That we might give glory to God for his mercy. That's us, by the way. Most of you, I'm guessing, perhaps everyone in this room, I'm not sure. We are Gentiles. So Jesus was sent for us too, that we might glorify God for his mercy. Because you know what? He didn't have to save us. And he hadn't promised to bless us, us Gentiles. 
We were strangers to the covenants of promise, Paul says in Ephesians 2, having no hope and without God in the world. Praise the Lord. He had mercy on us as well. And again, by Gentiles, we're talking about everyone who's not an ethnic Jew. So Europeans, uh, blacks, Latinos, Asians, and Arabs too. And so again, I don't think anybody would have mistaken my intention this morning, but this is not an anti-Arab message. Jesus came to save the world, including Arabs. And we're going to come back to that point in just, just a second. And so in closing, trying to wrap this all up, do you want to know how this morning you can pray for the peace of Jerusalem? First, pray for the return of the king. As we've already said, he alone can bring peace. And while you're praying for Christ to return, pray for the salvation of the Jewish people because it's their national repentance that from the human side of things, from a human standpoint, it's, it's their national repentance, Israel's national repentance, that triggers Christ's return. And of course, we may have to do some of this praying from heaven. You know, if the rapture occurs, you know, we'll be up there during the tribulation, but that, that's a whole, that's a whole nother sermon. But uh, here's the final wrinkle, okay? Here's the final wrinkle as we're praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Remember Romans 11. I referenced this uh, several minutes ago. There Paul says that a partial hardening, a partial blindness has come upon Israel until when? Until when? The answer is until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So if you're praying for the peace of Jerusalem, we need to be praying for the salvation of Gentiles as well, including Arabs. God will not save the nation of Israel and Christ will not return to earth until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in until the last Gentile gets saved. So pray for our missionaries to Arab peoples and Muslims. Pray for the stall cups um, reaching out to Muslims in New York City. Pray for the Gates family uh, seeking to reach Arabs in Dearborn, Michigan. Pray for the Garmies. Uh, seeking to reach uh, Muslims all over the world. Pray for our other missionaries to all the Gentile nations. And we have photographs of these missionaries uh, all around the room. Pray also for Jonathan Bucher and Craig Hartman of Shalom Ministries, who are ministers to the circumcision. We could say it that way. And pray for yourself. And please pray for me. Please pray for Good News Baptist Church and for all of our churches across America 
and across the world that we would be the witnesses that God wants us to be for the peace of Jerusalem and for the glory of God. Let's, let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we thank you today that you are a sovereign God, a powerful God, and a faithful God. And Lord, just as you've promised to be faithful and to keep your promises to Israel, so you have also promised to save anyone who calls upon you, who trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so, Father, if there's one here today who has not yet come to faith in Christ, we pray that they would come to him today. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.